This podcast was recorded on the date indicated with the link. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of Doubleline Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. Doubleline has no obligation to provide updates or changes. Welcome to the Sherman Show. I am your host, Jeff Sherman. I'm here with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today is Tuesday, April 18th, 2023. And we're recording from the Double Line offices. Uh, we didn't have our cameras all set up in the same room. So we're broadcasting from three different locales here at beautiful downtown Los Angeles. Today, our guest is none other than portfolio manager and head of our commercial real estate team, Morris Chan. Morris, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and so I uh, just thought it was very timely given a lot of things going on in the commercial real estate market uh, to bring you back in here. I know you've been very busy in your space. Uh, I know you've been very busy uh, talking to a lot of folks out there as well. But before we jump into the uh, the heart of the matter, maybe you can remind everyone a little bit about, about your background and what you do for us here at Double Line. Yeah, I mean, my background, I, you know, I started out in the in the fixed income credit space, analyzing, you know, a little bit of corporate credit, uh, and but mostly commercial real estate credit. So as we're kind of thinking about commercial real estate credit here, um, we do look at, you know, risky positions, you know, riskier credits that are below investment grade. We also look at uh, less risk, less credit risk sensitive positions, such as more higher grade AAA type oriented product at double line. These are all backed by commercial properties uh, in terms of in terms of the product that we we look at, and um, you know there's uh, there's definitely a lot of I'm surrounded by very very smart colleagues of mine that you know can dig into what is a good property, what is a bad property, what's a good loan versus what what is a bad loan. We can we can go any which way. <clears throat> yeah, so um, th there's been a lot of headlines out there. You know, it feels like you know especially since. You know, some of the issues that the regional banks have materialized over the last five or six weeks, it seems that the headlines are more and more rampant every single day. So uh, maybe you can walk us through some of the things you're seeing in the space. Um, kind of what are some of the risks out there? Um, are these headlines warranted in your viewpoint? And how should people be thinking about, broadly speaking, the commercial real estate industry? Yeah, um, you know, when we talk about headlines, headlines really started um, during the first quarter of this year, particularly uh, in January and February, um, and you know we sort of anticipated this last year as we're kind of as we're looking at the interest rate hiking cycle uh, in conjunction with the, its its effect on commercial real estate properties. Um, and you know as as the news came to fruition in terms of headlines, the first headlines were office default risk. Uh, we saw some large private equity companies. Where you know we heard that you know they had defaulted on commercial real estate loans, and I think you know from a practitioner that's on the ground that's looking at uh, looking at the situation, I would just say that there is more to the story. And what I mean by that, um, it takes you you know typically in a in a for a loan you do need a default um, to start any sort of modification discussions with the bar. And you know a lot of the situations that we're seeing in terms of near term defaults or recent defaults. A lot of them were driven by maturity maturity dates that were coming due, 
you know, some were, are, you know, two, three months out. Some are, you know, presumably during the third to fourth quarter of this year. But I think bars are just getting ahead of these maturity dates, trying to, uh, you know, engage the lenders in terms of discussion and figuring out what options do they have. Um, that's not painted in a rosy manner, though. These are. Yeah. Hey, Morris, real quick. This is something that happens in corporate America as well, right? This is not something really just specific to commercial real estate, right? Yeah, it, totally. I mean, as a, as a lender, you have you have a loan documentation that has a legal binding document. There are mechanisms and processes that that needs to take place uh, before certain uh, certain conversations can be had. Yeah. So you, you uh, I cut you off there because you were saying let's not try to paint a rosy picture about the situation. So uh, why don't you uh, expand on that comment? Yeah. So you know what I mean by that in itself is a default is a default. I mean clearly there is a problem, and the problem is you know from a borrower perspective they they need some relief. You know whether it's an ex maturity ex extension, uh, which buys them additional time. Whether it's uh, you know, some reprieve in terms of loan covenants uh, that were pre-negotiated within the loan documentation. In any event, there is, you know, there is underlying issues uh, with respect to, you know, some of these headlines. But, you know, I think a lot of times, often people look at the headlines and say, there's a default, which effectively can translate to, you know, the handing back of the keys for a building, which then could lead to immediate liquidation. Um, I would ca caveat by saying, as a practitioner within within this market, things don't move that quickly and specific to commercial real estate. And we saw this during the GFC as well. It takes years um, sometimes for resolutions to to come about. So, so uh, real, real quick on that, because uh, you, you mentioned the GFC, um, you know, and we, we all kind of lived through the whole residential mortgage crisis, right? And the declining of property values there. Um, you know, can can you remind our listeners what happened to commercial real estate during GFC? Because it, it's not the, exactly the same story, but you had similar construct. And then further, after you describe that, maybe you could tell us about what are some of the similarities and differences relative to today. Sure. Um, during GFC, I mean, what what led up to the global financial crisis? I mean, there was excess leverage. There was a seizing of the credit markets. You know, once you know once. Uh, you know the the credit market participants realized that the leverage was was in excess. Um, that seizing led to tight, tighter lending conditions, inavailability of credit. You also saw banks go out of business. Uh, and I think ultimately speaking, what people thought was the value of the property was incorrect. Um, and so, as a function of that, for you know, as it relates to commercial real estate, we saw a peak to trough sort of decline in terms of value around 37 to 38 percent. Uh, from peak to trough. Um, if you want to think about metrics, in a one-year uh, one-year change, the the largest change in terms of price change was around 22%, and that was a drawdown. So um, you know what we did see decline in value, but you know the peak to trough. I'll give you an example. That 37% move, um, the peak was was in 2008. So that's already, you know, right at the right at the uh, you know six seven months after the GFC, the the, the first bank uh, started having issues, and then the trough was actually in 2010 in October. So it took a long time uh, for prices uh, to to uh, in terms of some of these resolutions. And you know, for us, I think in the same way we're going to see a few uh, this this process drag out resolutions to 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 uh, to unfold 
uh, for in, in the years to come. So this isn't a, a quick manner. And I think time, as we've seen in the past, um, time provides optionality. Um, there could be a variety of different environments and, and outcomes that can happen. Uh, but with that said, I, you know, as I kind of stated, the resolution will take a, will, will definitely take some time. So one of the things that you mentioned earlier was um, turning in the keys. And that just made me think back to, you know, the GFC again, and the, the idea of jingle mail where um, residential mortgagers would turn in their keys if they found that their properties were under value and, or under, yeah, underwater, I should say. It was easier oftentimes to just turn in the keys back to the servicers. Servicers would take ownership and then you go through a foreclosure pro process before they took ownership, I should say. Um, when we think about commercial real estate, you're, you're starting to hear that more and you know, you're hearing the term strategic default come through. So what are some of the options that the other side of the table has if the manager decides to just turn in the keys, as you say, and strategically default on their property? Yeah, um, in, in an environment like this, when there is a default and a borrower decides to walk away from the property, uh, what typically would happen is the, the lender would uh, first um, <clears throat> foreclose on the foreclose on the property. Um, and then secondly, um, the lender would also hire a receiver uh, in, in, in place to operate the property. There's those two different options there. You can go foreclosure or you can do a deed in lieu a deal in lieu is is the handing back of the keys where you know the, the bar says here here you go i don't want anything of it um and and that's it uh in that situation it's a little cleaner than the foreclosure process on the foreclosure process process side it could be potentially be contested um after these uh these uh these using these two different options from there on it's really up to the lender um to own and operate the building and or own and operate the building through a receiver uh, under that construct there, there's a variety of options that can take place. You can, you know, if you, for example, in this office office building that we're in, clearly there are still tenants in that in that specific building. So as we're kind of thinking about this, you you know, you do need to continue to uh, to operate the building uh, now that you're the you're the new owner because there are leases in place that are contractual, uh, and now you're subject to those liabilities. Um, so again, you know, as we're thinking about the process. There are different types of process to get to a resolution. As a lender, your, your main goal is to try to get your loan principal back, the loan principal that you, you, you lent out. Um, and you know, from these avenues, um, it just increases your, your probability of trying to maximize the recovery value that you're, you're able to, to get. So to me, looking at the environment, and I think logically speaking, you're not going to want to sell a building immediately once you take ownership of the building, especially in this environment where there's a big question mark surrounding where interest rates are headed, where borrowing costs are, are going, where you know we are going as an economy. And as such, if you were a buyer of a building, you would try to price in all these uncertainties, which may or may not come to fruition. So you know that kind of brings us to this world where you're getting a disconnect between a buyer and a seller. The buyer is pricing to the worst case for all the reasons that they should be. And the seller is a little more optimistic. They, they are thinking, you know what? Things aren't going to be as bad. You know, I think things are going to be fine. So this is my asking price. So that is the, what is what we're seeing over the last 12 months. That's part of 
where we are currently in this cycle where borrowers and buyers are at a standstill <clears throat> or sellers. Let's just, you know, building on that scenario, let's just say that there are uh, is an increase in defaults or the need for, for resolution. How mature, how set up is the ecosystem around that for the lender to take potentially ownership through Dean and Lou or through some type of resolution? And again, I'm thinking back to my side on the resi where you had special servicing in place back in the global financial crisis. They were probably undersized, but they were able to ramp up fairly quickly because they had that experience in doing this. I'm assuming this isn't the new type of situation in commercial real estate, but are they well staffed enough to accommodate a potential uptick in defaults in the coming uh, months and quarters? I think the pandemic, we had a brief period where a scary period where uh, people were thinking about the tools that they can use, which is loan modifications, forbearance, uh, loan extensions, uh, by way of example. And I think that playbook, um, you know, this time around, as we're as we're looking again at the potential headwinds in, within the commercial real estate market, those tools can be utilized. As it relates to staffing, um, I do think um, you know we're staffed as appropriately as we can. I mean, this is one of the most telegraphed economic slowdown or you know recession that the market is trying has been anticipating um, for a period of time. And so you know as we're looking at the commercial real estate market, uh, you know for all those that are playing offense or that were playing offense, meaning they were trying to buy properties, I can tell you they're probably looking at their existing portfolio and trying to assess what property is good, what property is bad, what can we keep, what uh, what should we sell? Um, what can we do to to shore up uh, our, our our portfolios? And I think also, you know, what's kind of interesting is even on the mortgage broking brokerage side, you're seeing the market shift, you know, organically. A mortgage or a commercial real estate sales uh, uh, sales professionals, one that sells a building, is broker in a building. He's now, you know, we've seen a lot of these people that have shifted their their job now into consulting, valuation consulting, uh, workouts. Um, and also, you know, providing, you know, consulting services. So I think naturally the market is adjusting just given the, given what's going on. And I, I think it just comes down to this being so well telegraphed. So walk me through the scenario of something like a default. And I, I want to cover more about the space because I, I feel like we're honing in on office space here, which is obviously on everyone's mind, but you know, we are talking about a default or a deed in lieu and trying to find a buyer and all of this. So talk, walk us through a little bit of an example of like when you buy a security, what kind of exposure do you have to this? Is it like a residential mortgage where you're exposed to, you know, thousands of, 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 of homeowners um, and, you know, you're going to have some defaults in there. Uh, are you looking at single, one single building? Are there property types together? And then Talk a little bit about the securities themselves too, how when you buy them, are, are there protections in there, again, to help insulate against some of these kind of default and loss scenarios? Yeah, um, I, I think for, you had asked a question in the beginning about you know, differences between, uh, for the commercial real estate market um, during the global financial crisis relative to now or the great financial crisis relative to now. Um, I can say that within this within the securities market, um, particularly as we're, you know, keep in mind, we're focusing on these are debt investments or fixed income investments backed by properties. I think this time around, 
the structural provisions within the CMBS securities using commercial mortgage-backed securities as a as a proxy for you know real estate bonds. Um, there's definitely in, an improvement in the structural uh, features of of the transaction, and you know one stems from it stems from rating agencies, um, you know revaluing re their model um, coming out of the global financial crisis. Um, it also stems from the market just self-correcting. Um, using lessons learned from the previous cycle um, to better improve. And one prime example of a difference of, you know, a rating, a AAA rated bond today versus uh, what it was in 2007. 2007, a AAA bond had uh, essentially had a 11% uh, subordination, which means, you know, the bond can withstand 11% of losses before uh, before that bond is impacted, at least in terms of principal. Today, an 11% subordination level equates to a single A rated security. So, you know, two notches down uh, from, you know, from, you know, where it was versus, uh, if you, if you want to compare versus uh, where it was in 2007 and eight. And so, you know, that I'll start with that as an example of some improvements from a structural standpoint. As a, an investor, we look at ratings, uh, but I think more importantly, we also have to dig into the underlying loans and, and assess the probability of payback. Um, I think within this 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 part of the cycle, and as as and this time around, I'll use this time around as a as a, as a, as a baseline. We do think that a lot of the investment grade bonds um, and investment grade um, structures uh, are well protected from a principal standpoint, but there are, are a lot of concerns in terms of extension risk, defaults on a loan, you know, a loan that you know may have a state of maturity that is due a year from now. Uh, if there is a default, as as I kind of started in the beginning, defaults take a long time to to come to a, a, a some sort of resolution. So you know, bonds that are backed by loans that are defaulting, inherently these bonds will also have to extend. In terms of the average life, and so you know these extensions, uh, I think, are more prevalent in terms. Of, it's a more prevalent risk, particularly when we're talking about the safer parts of the capital structure, the safer, you know, the higher-rated bonds. And these extension risks are, you know, it's, you know, to me, is what, um, you know, as an active active manager, what we're trying to assess within our team. Um, clearly, the further down you go. Uh, in terms of the capital structure, say triple B and below or below investment grade bonds, the less protection you have from losses, I think those bonds are probably a little more exposed. So, you know, a default can mean different things to a bond investor. It depends on where you are in the capital structure, just like the corporate market where, you know, a, a, a investment grade bond is treated differently in a default cycle. Uh, when a company defaults versus uh, a high yield uh, position or a lower rated position. Yeah. And then on, on that note too, maybe you could wa uh, walk our listeners through a little bit of your process too. Like, how do you get comfortable with underwriting these loans? Maybe you could talk about your team, some of the things you guys do. Do you, do you go in and like survey tenants of a building? Like, how do you get comfortable with this? And what, what gets you that comfort level that, you know, that you can at least um, ensure that you believe that you're going to get, or I wouldn't say ensure, but that you believe you're going to get that return of your principal, although the timeline may get extended. How, how do you walk through it? How do you get those, achieve those comfort levels? 
Yeah, uh, it's it stems from you know digging into the the loans that make up the securitization or the that make up the the that's underlying the bonds. So as we're digging at the loan level, we want to assess you know as we're looking at a specific loan, we want to assess you know we're looking at metrics of who the borrower is, and you know that's important because you know these days you want to understand from a borrower standpoint what is their financial wherewithal to pay yourself you know pay us back. Knowing also this is on top of knowing that the collateral is 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 the building, um, the borrower dynamic in terms of assessment is more so very qualitative. You you can see if you see a borrower as a, a large private equity company with a newly and this this asset sits in a in, in a private equity fund of a certain vintage that gives you some clues in terms of um, in terms of the probability of payback. Uh, you got. You have to also look at the equity. How much equity do they have in the building? So shifting on from borrower, uh, once you look at the at the building at the building level, you have to look at financials. What is the property doing? Is if it's an office building, are the tenants uh, are the tenants in the in the in the office are are the tenants utilizing the office buildings? Uh, are the leases short term or long term? When do the leases come due? Uh, and and kind of time that back to the maturity date of the loan. You want to make sure that the cash flows on that building are stable. And so all these layers of analysis kind of roll up into uh, a more of a uh, ultimately a conclusion of what we what we come up with in terms of scenario for that specific loan. So, you know, borrower property level, uh, and then in conjunction with even market level data where if an asset is in downtown LA, I like to use that example because we are here, um, you can read reports, you can walk around. For us, it's easy to just go downstairs and, and assess what's going on locally. Um, and that'll give you a, a good good, a good idea of the durability of the cash flows on, that, on, on these specific buildings to the extent that a tenant were to vacate. So these inputs all go towards um, our assessment in terms of how a loan will uh, will be able to perform. And then ultimately, um, as we're you know tallying all these individual loan level uh, scenarios or outcomes, we can then assess whether or not the bond is a good bond to buy versus or not, or do we need to make some price adjustments? So it comes at the granular level. some some sometimes you know our colleagues can hear us make phone calls to you know real estate brokers that are, you know, that are out of state to ask about specific properties. Uh, on occasion, we do travel from time to time. And even myself, if I'm in New York and, and I have some meetings, you'll, you'll, you'll sometimes see me walk around, you know, perhaps if it's Fifth Avenue, um, just to see the properties that we have exposure to within our investment holdings, just to make sure that, you know, what our, you know, desktop or qualitative assessment is actually factually true. So we do, uh, you know, coming from the real estate world, we do, look at you know both numbers as well as the qualitative side where you know you, you have to make these assessments one thing that was interesting about what you said too is that i've been trying to think through this too and you were talking about the triple a's previously only having 11 percent protection versus losses and then so you know maybe, maybe and, and this is what they used to be and they're, they're probably in the mid-20s today it's kind of doubled right roughly or so on a triple a and so, you know, someone hears that and says, well, yeah, that's great. I have, you know, 20 plus percent protection to the downside. 
But Morris just told me that there was a 30 plus percent drawdown from peak to trough before. Then I hear you say something about there's equity in the deal. So when you think about, you know, for our listeners out there that aren't as familiar with this, as a bondholder or a lender out there too, what kind of equity sits in this and what incremental protection does that give us? Because a lot of our listeners will know from the residential mortgage side that, you know, usually there's a 20% down payment. That means that first 20% is usually absorbed to the downside by, by the homeowner. So uh, again, what, what exists in, in your market today? Yeah, a, a, a typical CMBS loan program from a loan to value perspective a borrower is able to get, you know, anywhere between 60% to 65% loan to value. So, um, you know, if you want to think about how much equity is in a building, um, you know, inherently that's about 35 to 40% of equity uh, in a building. So when we're thinking about a bond, uh, once that mortgage uh, is securitized into a, in, into a security, um, a AAA rating is tied to an LTV of around 35%. A you know a below investment grade rating is tied to uh, the the building at an LTV between 55 to call it 65 percent LTV. So um, from a at least from if you conceptually think about how much equity is in these are 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 in these buildings within that is held within these commercial mortgage securities, there is, you know, a decent amount of equity. Um, as we're thinking about today's market, though, as values reset, clearly, um, you know, we can't ignore that. You know, valuations. There, we're gonna, we're not, we can't ignore that valuations will decline within the commercial estate property spectrum, and we do agree with that. But we just feel that as a debt holder, if your starting point is at 65 LTV. Um, you know, even in using the global financial crisis sort of metric of that drawdown of 37%, largely speaking, the it's it's the borrowers or it's the it's essentially the borrower's problem. It's it's the equity owner's problem in today's environment. As a debt holder, um, if you're if you're at the low leverage point, you're fine. Your principal is well protected. So when we think about the different property types out there, and we've been spending a lot of time on office, which is, you know, kind of the source, the source yeah. of the negative news, the negative headlines that we've heard of late. And, you know, when we were talking about during the pandemic or even pre-pandemic, people were talking about retail properties as being another sore spot within the CRE market. What are some different property types out there that are accessible within your universe of of assets that you'll potentially look at that you know serve as collateral for some of the bonds or loans that you're buying, what looks attractive out there? And you know, along with that, I mean, how much shifting gears kind of within the same question, besides different property types that you can look at, are there different regions of the US that look more attractive than others? Are there areas that you're avoiding as well? Yeah. Um... One can go down as we, I like how you characterize, you know, we talked a lot about office and I, I do agree from a outlook perspective in itself, you know, the, you can't ignore the office headlines given what we're hearing. But, you know, one thing that I haven't gotten across though is when you think about commercial real estate, aside from office, office is only about a third of, uh, typically a third of the outstanding commercial real estate market. There are retail properties, retail properties that are backed by, it's not just malls, there are shopping centers. Uh, there's also strip retail centers, <laughs> neighborhood retail centers that, you know, that collateralize 
are that are that are you know part of the ecosystem. There's also industrial properties as it relates to logistics centers, which Morris, are you, you can take a sip of water. Morris is trying to choke yeah. through it to to power on. So uh, um, there you go. We we got to keep Morris alive around here. He's important here at Double Line. So uh, <laughs> you know, don't power through and choke. So there we go. All right. Yeah. So we're going to industrial properties. Yeah, yeah. So there's retail. There's industrial. As we're kind of thinking about industrial, it's very that's been very popular. From a logistics warehousing uh, standpoint, just given the the uh, the transition from brick and mortar retail to uh, to online or e-commerce, there's also hospitality, uh, which is a lodging sector. Um, if you want to ask me what I you know in terms of a heat map, and I can kind of give you a, a sense, office is negative. We already touched upon that. We're not going to talk about that right now. Uh, on the retail side, I do think you know a lot of the grocery anchored shopping centers uh, that you know have you know, in, in essence, you know, backed by a, a, a retail grocer, there could be some inline tenants, you know, smaller tenants that, you know, that that, that uh, line up uh, next to that, you know, specific grocer, such as a sandwich store, by way of example, you know, those type of assets, I think have done pretty well and been time tested, particularly during the pandemic, to the point where those assets have kind of proven themselves that, hey, they're worthy um, you shouldn't be, you know, as afraid as as you were prior to the pandemic. Those assets, you know, have some viability. So, from a secular standpoint, I think you know, grocery anchor shopping centers will continue to do okay. Um, malls, I I feel for what's survived thus far, um, there are dying malls that are zombie malls. I, I you know, we touched upon that uh, in the past. I do feel that that story will continue to play out meaning those malls will probably uh, need to be retooled for a different purpose. But there's also productive malls that, out there that, again, have been tested by the pandemic. So the pandemic was a good test for retail. What you see is what you get currently. I think the peak, you know, the, the, the peak in terms of a, the trough of the retail uh, cycle, at least what we've seen over the last three years, it gives you a really good, more, a better uh, picture of what's going to, you know, what is good versus what isn't. Um, that's with the caveat that we are heading into economic slowdown. Retail is tied to the consumer. Um, so, you know, there will be some marginal impact, but I'm not as concerned about retail as I was prior to prior to all of this um, starting. And then shifting to the industrial sector, I think secular secular changes will continue to build well for industrial. Um, <clears throat> similarly, for multifamily as well, in terms of apartments, I do think there's there's positives in terms of the apartment sect, uh, uh, sector, and a lot of the you know between the two industrial and apartments. If you think about availability availability of financing, that is also pretty prevalent for those two assets. I mean, you can be uh, a you can be a borrower today trying to buy a building in an industrial park, and I'm pretty sure you can find a loan. Um, and that's on the contrary, you want to you can compare that to office where you could be the best building, but finding a loan on an office building like to someone to lend you against your office building is a lot more difficult. So I think, you know, that's part of the reason why multifamily and industrial uh, to us, uh, it is a, is a more favorable asset. So, you know, if you think about these these core asset classes within property within the commercial real estate, there is two thirds of the market is not office and, you know, be careful to 
let's let's be careful at least from the listener's standpoint itself like my advice is you know there is a vast market away from office and you know that isn't necessarily doing that badly badly you know hotels are actually doing pretty well um as well um so you know for us it's it's really understanding the details uh and the and how the commercial real estate market works so when you think about these various types too, you know, how economically tied is commercial real estate or, or how much is tied to the economic cycle? Um, because, you know, if you're just talking about kind of servicing debt, you know, you, you mentioned hotels there towards the end, right? That, you know, that seems very economically sensitive to me, right? Business travel drives the bulk of, of RevPAR, right? Revenue per available yeah. room, right? Um, then you get the leisure side, you know, in certain certain pockets. But you know, uh, if you're talking about just, you know, kind of extending and working on a loan, it seems to me that some of that really kind of seems like cycle agnostic. Is that too naive to think through? Or is it different for different types of properties when people are comparing leisure to, let's say, multifamily? Yeah, uh, hospitality on the leisures. I mean, you can't say it's cycle agnostic, at least on the hospitality side. It's clearly levered to the performance of the economy. Some hospitality properties, such as more business-oriented properties, um, are that relies on business travel. That's that's going to underperform a lot. You know, that's going to perform a lot worse uh, in a down cycle than, say, a leisure hospitality assets, which the user of those leisure hospitality assets may be more insulated from. Um, so, you know, it's there's going to be a bifurcation or you know difference uh, in tiering in terms of performance. Within the hotel sector, um, I can you can say that about retail as well. Depending on where you know what type of retail center it is, um, and 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 how it performs. So for us, you know, which which comes down to you know as an a, as an investor, that's what makes it interesting. We can you can try to make an assessment, uh, and and reflect that assessment you know within within our portfolios. As we're thinking about investing in uh, against some of these properties, the varying degrees of outcomes based on our economic views, uh, we we saw we we saw one interesting, unique sort of dynamic in terms of leisure hospital. I'll give you an example. There has been these hotel assets that are backed by water parks, uh, um, and it, it, the the name of the company is called Great Wolf, and we've seen that. During the global financial crisis, where I, I recalled it back in 2013 and 2014, I was looking at looking at that with a very suspicious um, sort of view out, uh, outlook, just given the water park dynamic. But then once you dig into the financials, they actually did very, very well during the recession, uh, during the previous recession. And a lot of that has to do to the fact that the affordability dynamic and the drive to dynamic, meaning you don't have to get in an airplane, you could just get in a car, you could drive to it. Um, to that, and you can still have a reasonable lower cost vacation as opposed to flight, getting an airplane and flying somewhere. Um, that actually performed decently, and you know I would say in similar form and dynamic here on the uh, to, in today's market, there are assets that one can assess that are somewhat you know economic resilient, economic uh, economic resilient, uh, and even in these conditions, and that's up to us to. To, to kind of pick and choose. So this is a market where, you know, we, we, we have to, you have to pay attention to the details. You have to 
find these gems within within the market. And I think that's what makes a makes the job fun. <laughs> I like how you said the job's fun. So uh, <laughs> very very uh, good with all these challenging times. But one more thing that's uh, kind of been cited as a big negative is some of these. Um, you know, non-publicly traded REITs out there. And again, I'm not going to get to specifics or calling them out, but that there's a lot of embedded exposure within commercial real estate sitting in a lot of these uh, REITs. And what what do you think the impact is of that? Uh, how do you think some of that plays out? And does that have spillover effects into your market? Or is that just the difference between an equity REIT holder versus a debt REIT holder? And again, uh, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know it's in all of these REITs out there. I'm sure there is some combination of equity and debt as well. I would say by design, the non-traded REIT structure, um, or, you know, you can say the interval fund dynamic of some of these non-traded REITs, it's, it by design, it is working um, as, as, as it relates to some of the assets that they own. There are a lot of equity assets, a lot of private assets. And as we, kind of think about the markets security securities market versus private market it's markedly different uh, from a liquidity standpoint so um, to to me from my seat as we're looking at the structure that those investments are held in um, by design it's working now uh, now in, as it relates to the impact from an asset value perspective in itself um, because there's no forced sales, or you know, because of due to the structure of how these vehicles are designed, um, the market in itself, at least in terms of resolutions, will just you know will just be delayed. Um, there will be a dragged out time frame in terms of how prices of buildings will uh, will at least in terms of where prices of buildings will end up. So this no for sale mechanism by design, it is working. I think it protects the market as well. Is it a concern? Of course, yes, it is a concern to me, but from a, at least from a um, dynamic where the for selling mechanism, like I'm not concerned about that. And I, I do know that a lot of people ask this question. I've been asked this a few times. Um, you know, that is, that is by design, that's what these vehicles are. They do hold markedly different investments relative to a traditional bond fund. So let's shift gears here, Morris. Let's talk about how one can use CMBS in their overall portfolios, because we here at Double Line use it across many of our fixed income, multi-sector fixed income portfolios. It's a strategic piece. You know, we we toggle the allocation up and down, but we, as far as I've been, you know, with the with the team, we've always had a piece in CMBS uh, as a strategic allocation to our portfolio. So, what role does CMBS play within portfolios? I mean, we. We get the sense that, you know, especially on the side that you traffic in, it's it's a credit-related um, product there. But how does it compare to other areas of credit? Let's say, say versus corporate credit versus uh, other consumer or consumer credit, other securitized uh, credit. How do you think about it? How can people think about it in terms of perhaps putting it to work in their own portfolios? I think the primary, I mean, a unique difference between corporate versus corporate credit you want to compare cmbs versus corporate credit you have a collateral um your loan has a collateral that collateral is a building it could be a, you know a, a, all types of different types of commercial buildings and, but at the end of the day you do have a collateral there is an asset to it so in the event of a 
uh, of, a, you know, in the event of a loan default, you can sell the collateral and recover uh, your principal through, uh, through that dynamic. So I would say, you know, that's one component of, you know, comprehending uh, what a CMBS uh, investment is. So that collateral uh, is important. Now, you know, taking a bigger, bigger, you know, bigger step back here, um, you, as a diversifier, you get, you know, coming into the CMBS market for those that, that understand it and can navigate it, you are paid access return uh, relative to the risk you're taking. A AAA rated security within the CMBS market today trades at, you know, anywhere between a five and a half to call it six and a half yield. Uh, uh, under under existing market condition, uh, on a spread perspective, you are you know anywhere between you know 150 basis points over treasuries uh, to you know as wide as 200 basis points over treasuries uh, for a generic AAA. Compare that to corporates. Corporates are trading a lot more inside uh, of where CMBS is, and this is where that pickup and yield that you get uh, relative to corporates uh, uh, dynamic. Uh, that's why it's prevalent there. So uh, a pickup and yield, a way to diversify yourself uh, within your portfolio from um, cre corporate credit um, is, is uh, one of the useful tools uh, of using CMBS. Um, this is a market that has repriced for all the reasons that we talked about for the last 40 minutes. Um, there's been a lot of concern in terms of this market, but you know, we're here to try to, and myself, I'm here to try to educate everyone that, you know, for the investors that are able to navigate this, able to do the credit work, you're able to pick and choose what uh, what you want to invest in. Um, you know, CMBS market is a good way to uh, to play that uh, play some offense and and also be a contrarian. Um, there's not all property debt is bad, um, and you know, for us. That's what we're here to do. Try to find good investments within within a market that has a lot of uncertainties. So, Morris, how do you answer the question to someone that says, "I really like what you're what you're describing here, but you know, look, you know, it's just risky. Um, you know, this is super risky. We haven't seen this experience. the The dynamic is changing. The work remote dynamic and the likes. And so, uh, how do you help quell those concerns to? A prospect or, or someone who is taking the kind of their first and cursory glance at the asset class. Yeah, I mean, you know, it kind of goes back into where are we, where, what do we like within our market, and and why. You know, number one, we're, you know, I we like the investment grade components of the CMBS market. So, uh, one, you're buying higher grade paper. Two, inherently, you know, keep in mind the mortgage we're investing in mortgages. So these are, you know. Commercial building, uh, commercial mortgages that are backed by commercial buildings, um, which insulates you from you know risk. You're not taking equity risk. This is not a uh, uh, investment that you're buying a building on. You're buying a, the mortgage of that building uh, against that building. So that's you know another dynamic. And then thirdly, there's equity beneath you. Um, just given that you're the mortgage, inherently the from an equity standpoint, there. The, the owner of the building's equity is usually around 30 to 35 percent. And then, you know, as we're kind of thinking about, uh, you know, all that's going on and what's, what's percolating within commercial real estate valuation, you know, we just we just we do feel that, you know, you're very insulated from any you know, potential principal impairment 
um, at for the right investment profile for at the right part of the capital structure. And you know that's where you know that's where for us that's why we're biased uh, towards the higher grade paper within the CMBS structure. And you're getting paid a, a, a fair, a very, very fair spread and or yield pickup relative to other investments for that reason. Yeah, I mean, um, and that's probably some of the reasons why, you know, um, we're offering product in this space, right, is that, you know, we're not shy of the risk. And uh, a wise man once told me, too, if, if you know you're taking risk um, and you think you're getting paid for it, that's a lot better than taking risks, not getting paid for it, and not knowing that you're actually taking it. And so uh, I think it's been a great conversation too, Morris. And so uh, for our listeners out there too, how can they get more information on you know what you're doing in the team here, uh, what's available out there, and how can they get access to uh, to your current thoughts? Yeah, um, you know, I would refer everyone to our website, our double line website. They're there are a lot of thought pieces that we were putting out, uh, especially in recent recent months, um, just given all that's going on within the commercial real estate uh, spectrum. There's also funds out there that, you know, that we have launched that are more focused on commercial real estate um, where you, one can gain ex exposure. I would refer everyone to look at our website uh, for that information. All right, Morris. Well, it's always a pleasure. Uh, thanks for uh, you know getting this uh, podcast together quickly with us too, because just getting more and more you know questions on the space. I thought, what better way than to reach out to our 17 viewers um, that listen to this and be able to make sure that they they get exposure to it. And so you know, I, I think one of the things that um, you know people always talk about eating your own cooking and how you you think about it. Well, as allocators, you know that Sam and I work on the asset allocation process. You know, one of our largest exposure in our lower risk funds is to the high credit quality, low duration aspects of the commercial real estate market. And so it's something that a lot of our investors don't know that's in there, uh, but it's something that, you know, on a risk reward basis, uh, we fully agree with you too. And uh, like I said, we vote with our, our clients' assets too. And you can even observe those funds and see, you know, how, how they perform through this cycle too. So thanks for all the work you put in here. Thanks for spending time educating our audience. But before I let you go back and up to the desk, I got to introduce you to Sam's favorite part of the show. All right, Morris, and that favorite part of the show is called Sherman Says. You were on here, uh, what was it now, five years ago about, so you may have forgotten, so I will refresh you on the rules of the road here. It's where I'm going to offer a series of prompts between you and Sherman to get a top of mind response. And the first one's gonna to go to Sherman so you can get a little bit of an example here. Sherman, stagflation. Low likelihood. I think if we slow in growth, we get some deflation out of it. And so I just think that stagflation is, it's, it's, well, it's, it's well spirited. People are sniffing around it, but I think if we get uh, more of this uh, kind of slowdown, it leads to a deflationary environment. All right. Well-spirited, but uh, not love, let's say, of that. But uh, more, uh, Morris, the next one is yours. Uh, return to office. I like it. <laughs> and as he said earlier, he has inherent biases, people. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> right, Sherman. Higher for longer. 
hire for longer until they can't, right? So, um, you know, I was talking to someone this morning about this too and saying, well, you know, the Fed's going to cut, you know, 25 in the next quarter and then another 25. And I'm like, no, when they cut, they're going to cut. So they're going to be late. They're just like they were late to the rate hiking regime and they'll be late on the other side. So hire for longer until they can't stomach the pain. But remember, Jay Powell said he's going to bring pain. That was my Mr. T trying to impersonate. It wasn't very good. I see you shaking your head. So. No, no, I, was, I wasn't shaking. I was kind of nodding, thinking about Method Man and bringing the ruckus. But uh, yeah. let's go back he to your He also had a song called I Came to Bring the Pain, too. That's so, true. That's yeah, true. Yeah. yeah. All power to the brain. Uh, I think that's what it is. But anyway, Morris, uh, vacancies. Rising. Sherman, let's see here. Trust in government. Who would, who in their right mind would? I think we're Americans, so we always are skeptical of our, our, our of our leaders. I suppose. I, I I forget who the quotes are attributed to. I think people attribute it to Ray, Reagan. Says like the most dangerous words in the English language are "I'm here from the government" and "I'm here to help." Right. <laughs> you know. So. Fitting. All right, back to you, Morris. With landlords. In trouble. COVID. COVID's in trouble. We're, we're kicking its butt. It seems like right. uh, I haven't read much about it anymore. So um, hopefully it's a thing of the past and, and we've learned our lessons. All right. Morris, cryptocurrency. Going up. I thought you might draw on Sherman and say learned your lesson, but uh, <laughs> less, we learned our lessons, but uh, I guess Been going up. <laughs> Sherman. Yeah, but don't, don't look at the cost basis, right? <laughs> this is a hat tip to the day. We're Recording again on uh, April 18th, taxes. Ain't going to pay them. You know why? Because we sit in California. So uh, as I was joking with someone, you know, like other states have had massive disasters. We have floods. I know there was some pain out there. We get a couple of rainstorms and we get, uh, you know, a 10 month extension. So thank you uh, to the folks at the IRS. We appreciate it. Sorry for the rest of the country that we're going to move the the debt ceiling issue forward because they're not paying our taxes and we try to look this up morris i don't know if you're familiar with this but you know the u.s the california population is like 13 14 percent of the u.s but if you look at the federal tax payments uh california pays a low 20 handle of the overall federal tax receipts and so uh, i would say that most of us are sitting in t-bills so thanks jay for the for the nice carry on us not to pay our taxes so uh we will pay our taxes Please do not uh, investigate us. We don't need any audits or anything, but uh, we're delaying till uh, October 15th. So thanks for that. All right. And why is it the 18th? Off. Did you ever figure it out, Lau? Why, why was the 18th? Like, because the 15th was a weekend. Why wasn't the 17th? Because that was Monday. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. All right. <laughs> I have no clue. Anyway. All right. Wrap us up here, Morris, with uh, movie ticket prices. Oh, man. I just had a rude awakening. Twenty twenty-two dollars for a movie ticket in Santa Monica. Family of five, one hundred and thirty bucks, basically. That doesn't sound like twenty-two <laughs> times five. <laughs> it but, doesn't um, add up, but uh, yeah, tax, <laughs> with taxes and fees. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's weird how they charge you a fee to like buy the ticket, right? It's like they got the Ticketmaster model because no one wants to actually do it. You know, go to the box office, right? Um, Sounds like uh, that Netflix subscription is looking cheaper by the day. Definitely. Yeah, it's also uh, the difference in regions. I think we touched a little bit on that on the commercial real estate as well. Your side of town, 
22. What'd you say? 99. Mine was 1299 on my side of the town there. So <laughs> wait, so, so now ticket movie tickets are going for the 99s now too. They, they don't, they don't want you 13. They're going to charge you 1299 and you're going to think it's a deal. It's not like the gas prices with the extra pips in there though. Or whatever <laughs> the they call it, the extras. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, um, for those of you who don't know, Sam's a big fan of the PIPS nomenclature, and I'm not talking about Gladys Knight. So, all right, everyone, let's, let's call that a wrap. Thank you, Morris. Thanks for spending the time. Uh, very interesting space. Uh, keep up the good work for what you're doing here for all of our investors at DoubleLine. If you have uh, more questions, feel free to reach out for us at info at DoubleLine.com. Uh, we're here to help out. As Morris said, check the website as well. A lot of good information. So uh, stay tuned. Uh, this podcast is obviously on all the, the major platforms. Uh, we recorded this again on our YouTube channel. If you're not following us there, please do. YouTube.com backslash Double Line Capital. Uh, you can also see Channel 11 on there, hosted by Portfolio Manager Ken Shinoda. And we all know about uh, Sam's other role, Moonlighting, on his other podcast, The Monday Morning Minutes. So uh, for all things Double Line, go to YouTube.com backslash Double Line. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another more timely episode as well. Take care all and good luck out there. The audio presentation represents Double Line's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Liability, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2023, Double Line Capital.